from the NLRPD to KTHV to behind the microphone. It's Scott Romine with Guatney Unplugged. Hey, Scott Romine with Guatney Unplugged. Welcome back. I'm so excited. Our next guest is without a doubt one of my heroes. I grew up watching this guy buying magazines he was in. We're talking with Sean Ray. Mr. Olympia competitor was in the top tw- top 10 for what? 12 consecutive Mr. Olympias. Sean Ray. How are you, Sean? <laughs> I'm good, but I like accuracy. It was the top five for 12 consecutive years. And boy, does that sound like a long time ago? And 94 and 96, I want to say, was your top years. Is that right? Well, according to the judges, yeah. I was second place both those times, so I got a very close sniff at what it would have felt like to be the best bodybuilder on the planet. Those were my, my two best opportunities, and both times I lost out to the reigning defending champion, which was Dorian Yates, who won six in a row, and we couldn't have been any more opposite. He's five foot ten, maybe 260 pounds plus. I'm five six. At my best, I was about 206, 210 pounds, and it really was a case of apples and oranges uh, both of those years, and uh, I came up at a time where bigger was being rewarded um, because my first Olympian, 88, Mr. Olympia Lee Haney, was 5'10", 250. He won eight years in a row. And then uh, when Lee Haney retired in 91, Dorian happened to be second place, and he then inherited the throne after Haney retired, won- rattled off six in a row, and <laughs> then came Ronnie, Ronnie Coleman, who was 5'10", 280 pounds, and Ronnie won eight times in a row. So I came, I couldn't have been born at the wrong time as it relates <laughs> to bodybuilding. Um when I first started lifting weights in 83, Mr. Olympia was 5'6", 197 pounds, and it was the Lion of Lebanon. That was Samir Banu. That's right. I was se- I was 17 years old, and at that time, had I been born and competing in that era, I would have had a much better opportunity for victory, uh, but I got no regrets. I was fighting in the Giants, and I had a very good run. Yeah, but you're right. But earlier on, guys like Frank Zane and those kind of guys, they were not these mass monsters, you know, that uh, I guess really today it's far beyond what it ever was even back then. Yeah, I mean, listen, we I entered into the Jurassic era. <laughs> in, it, it, I call it Jurassic because it was just huge dinosaurs. The Jurassic era came uh, in 1988 when I started bodybuilding. You had a lot of guys that were about 5'10". I mean, Barry DeMay was 5'10", 5'11". Gary Stridham was 5'10", 5'11". You had Lee Haney. So there was a lot of taller guys. And then the tall guys kind of disappeared, and they just were replaced with just big. And I think uh, Dorian and Ronnie Coleman, I think, were both benefactors of the size and the wild factor. These guys were just... They took the size of Haney and just kind of blew it up. And remember, uh, Mark McGuire and you had uh, Jose Conseco, the Bash Brothers, are hitting home runs. And, uh, you know, I think that was the era where the drugs were kind of just uh, running rampant and guys were just getting huge and people were so amazed by the size and what was going on with these physical changes uh, that an artist like myself was kind of getting lost in the shuffle and kind of tossed around from second to third to fourth to fifth and I don't want to blame it all on drugs, but at the time, bigger was certainly being rewarded for better. And now, I believe, with the creation of uh, the classic physique, you have guys that uh, are having an opportunity to actually display their physiques because a lot of the smaller guys were disappearing. They just chose not to compete anymore. 
How I, do- on the, I, on the other hand, stayed the course, fought the good fight, and they remained in the top five. Hey, Sean, how do you feel about that? I think the classic physique is where it's at. I idolize you guys in your era and not this bloated stomach thing. Uh, I don't know. How do you feel about the fact that they even have to invent a classic-style body bodybuilding well, competition? It, it's evolution, isn't it? I mean, listen... Uh, LeVar Ball created this big baller league for these basketball players that weren't uh, really college scholars that would have the opportunity to go to the NBA. So I think there's supply and demand. When we saw these bodybuilders being over-rewarded with size, uh, I was instrumental in my retirement in creating the 202-pound division. I put on the very first one in 2007 in New York, and it was for guys that were 200 and under. So that would be guys that were probably my height and smaller, not a guy that's 5'10". And it, it eventually evolved into the 212-pound division, which we have now after about three or four years. And that is a very competitive uh, division, but it was made out of supply and demand. James Flex Lewis has won six in a row on that competition at the Olympia. It's called the 212 Showdown. But we have the 212 division all around the world. And if it weren't for the idea that we're going to lose these smaller bodybuilders if something's not done, um, we wouldn't have a James Flex Lewis. So I was instrumental in creating that. Classic came out of necessity because the taller guys were having problems getting up to 300 pounds and competing with a few guys that were reaping the rewards of the, of the freak and the wow factor. So now you have guys that are six feet tall that have to weigh a certain weight. They're put into this box. And in this box, they can't be 300 pounds. They have to be 220 pounds or 225 pounds. So you can't get too big or you take yourself out of that. And they're trying to bring back those Frank Zane lines. They're trying to bring back the tiny waist and the abdominals and the condition that we lost along the way somewhere in the early, uh, late 80s, early 90s. Thank you for doing that. You uh, were on endless amounts of Flex magazines. Uh, have you really done more than anybody has ever done? Because I know I had a ton of them. Yeah, I, 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 at the time I retired, I was on more Flex Magazine covers. By the way, that magazine started in 1980 from Joe Weider and, uh, at Weider Enterprise. I, when I retired in, 19, or in 2001, I was on more covers of that magazine than Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, that's a dubious distinction that I never thought I would have because at the time, there weren't a lot of black bodybuilders on covers of magazines when I came up. I remember Robbie Robinson was on the cover of Muscle and Fitness once, the Black Prince. And Chris Dickerson, I believe, was on the cover of Flex Magazine uh, in 1982 after he won the Mr. Olympia at the tender age of 43. Um, prior to that, I, Lee Haney had to win a few of his Olympia titles before he wound up on the cover of Flex, but he was only on a handful of times. I was on, at the time I retired, a record number of 36 covers Jeez. over my, over my uh, from, ni- from 1987 to 2003, I believe it was. I retired in one. And uh, that was a great honor because it wasn't something I, I didn't seek cover magazines. I sought to be the best bodybuilder in the world. But in the pursuit of that, I realized that a photograph lasts forever. It's, yeah, the, a call, it's, the, call, it's the calling card, and it creates a supply and demand. So while I was on the cover here in America, I was on the cover in Germany. I was on the cover in England. I was on the cover in Australia because they had all these different branches of, of flex magazines that were translated in other languages. So when I arrived in those countries, I was just as popular there as I was here, and that certainly helped the, the, the revenue machine in terms of selling my pictures and my posters and my videos and DVDs. So 
that was a great run for me during that time. I can't imagine. Uh, you, we, we, we met you because of Dan English. He's a car guy. This is a car show, and he was on last week. And, and you have a relationship with him. And I know, understand that you've been to Arkansas a couple of times. Can you tell us about that? 1994, when I got second place, I was coming down to eat breakfast at the common area where all the athletes were staying and the fans were staying. And, and I had a plate full of food prior to the show, and uh, I didn't have a place to sit down. And, of course, me being in the contest, I had a bunch of fans trying to, hey, can I get a picture, can I get a picture? And I just wanted to find somewhere to sit down and eat. And I saw this guy with a beard sitting by himself, and I walked over. I said, hey, is anybody sitting here? He says, no. I sat down. I said, you mind if I sit? He said, yeah. We started a small conversation, and it got to who here to see. What are you doing here? And he says, I'm here uh, to watch the Olympia. I said, who are you come to see? He said, I came to see you. And I was like, where, where'd you come from? He said, Arkansas. Like, what's the odds? You came to see me and we're sitting here having breakfast? He said, yeah, man, I'm a big fan of yours, man. I'm, I'm cheering for you. Uh, and prior, awesome. the, pri- the previous year, I was third place behind Flex Wheeler and Dorian. And I said, well, that's pretty cool. What do you do? He says, I sell cars. Said, what kind of cars? Exotic cars. And at the time, I had, um, I think I had a, a Mercedes. I just had a Ferrari Testarossa. And I like cars. I mean, I had oh, a Corvette. Yeah. I had a Corvette. I had a Porsche, Ferrari Testarossa, uh, uh, a, a Lotus S. Free is what I think I had, and by eating breakfast with Dan, after we got done eating, I, there was a time where you got to pose and put on the tanning and stuff. And I was there with my girlfriend at the time, and I said, "Hey, you want to come up and, and help me with my posing?" I was at I was at the Olympia just with my girlfriend. She knew nothing about bodybuilding; sure. she was a model. And uh, Dan came up, and I was doing my mandatory posings, and there he was looking at me the day before my show, practicing my posing, counting my reps. And uh, I, got, I imagine what he what was going through his mind, like holy shit! I mean, I'm in here with the with an Olympian, <laughs> and I'm and I'm just looking at a guy that's like a fan of mine, and I'm thinking this is good because I'm not doing it by myself. From that interaction, I believe we had dinner that night and we exchanged numbers. Dan wound up selling my car, and, and I bought a couple of cars, and and somewhere down the road, maybe six or seven years later, I wound up buying my dream car, which was a Lamborghini. Uh, Diablo. I had a dog in 1992 that I purchased, and I named my dog Lamborghini Diablo. <laughs> and uh, and I called him Diablo. Was and it red? Because, no, my dog was my dog was black, but my car was red. Anyway, Dan and our friendship, which still exists to this day, on a chance meeting, uh, several car, tra- cars later and some transactions. He stayed at my house. I've come to visit him at his house, and we traveled and watched the Olympia and and kind of watched each other grow. But um, Dan <clears throat> helped me realize a part of my dream, which was to own the car of my dreams, the Lamborghini Diablo. And the irony of that was so weird and surreal that a chance meeting at a breakfast on the day that I was at my absolute best almost became Miss Olympia. Um, it led us to this business transaction and this friendship that we still maintain to this day, all in the name of, uh, of a car that I never thought I could have or own. And through bodybuilding, I was able to purchase that thing. I can remember being 16 here in Arkansas, buying magazines with you, and I'm going down the road. I can remember this like it was yesterday, and I get behind a car that has an Arkansas tag that says Sean Ray. And I kind of flipped out thinking, man, is that him? Is he really here in Arkansas? You know, is this is the guy here? But uh-huh. I, I never met you at that time. Did you actually go to, like, some Arkansas bodybuilding competitions? Yeah, so when Dan, I purchased, I purchased several cars from Dan, and then I came out and I stayed a couple of times and visited him over at Corporate Motor Cars, and, and Dan was 
the car dealer to celebrities. And uh, I was going through a phase of life as a single bachelor where I had the means and, and the ability to, to buy some cars that, you know, I only had dreamed of. So I had I purchased a BMW 750i from Dan, and I bought a 5B, 5 Series BMW. I bought uh, um, this uh, Lamborghini Diablo from Dan. And then uh, when I retired and I, I met my wife, the car thing was over for me. Uh, I had I had them all, you know. <laughs> you had already motor- done it. Yeah, and motorcycles too. But it, it took me – our friendship was strong enough where he could come and stay in my house and I could come visit him in his house. And it wasn't all about cars. It was about life. Dan uh, has, has been very instrumental in being a, not only a friend but a mentor. He's a few years older. And uh, we've, we've seen each other kind of grow up from afar. And uh, the irony is we can go months without talking to each other and pick up the phone and, and, and feel like we didn't miss a beat. And this all came from uh, a chance encounter at the 94 Mr. Olympia. The commonality we had was bodybuilding. We, we lost a mutual friend. He introduced me to the late Don Youngblood, and Don Youngblood was a bodybuilder who was up and coming, and uh, Dan was friends with him, you know, in the trucking business, and he asked me if I could give the guy some advice back in 97. And in 97, I'd gotten third in Long Beach. And uh, I said, yeah, I can, I can give him some advice, and I helped give him some instruction and introduce him to the vice president of the bodybuilding, and they were creating the master's division of the Olympia, and Dan uh, wanted to to go in the Masters Olympia. And in 1998, Dan and Don both came to my room uh, and watched me pose before the 98 Mr. Olympia up close and personal, and that lit a fire under Don Youngblood. And Don Youngblood would go on to upset Vince Taylor, five-time Masters Olympia champion, in 2001, my final year of competition. Um, and so now I'm helping Dan's good friend, Don Youngblood, kind of give him some advice uh, and things, and unfortunately, we lost Don Youngblood in 2005. I, I particularly blame bodybuilding for the loss of Don Youngblood um, because he was just—he was an excessive compulsive guy. He just got too big. Uh, I'm sure he was over 300 pounds and probably had sleep apnea issues, and uh, he just got too big for his own use. And I think his heart couldn't take it, and, and he passed away. That's and uh, and you know, it's it's not uncommon in bodybuilding where you know size will kill you. That's true. Uh, numerous athletes. Uh, the late Dallas McCarver was 26. He died over 300 pounds. And Greg Kovacs and Art Atwood and Nasser Elsenbody. It takes me to a place I don't want to be. But I held true to my size. I stayed in this little compartment where I thought being healthy is more important than anything else. And uh, I think the loss of Dawn was an important um, reminder to a lot of people that big isn't better. That's true. And and me and, me and Dan shared that experience to... Uh, reminisce about Don Youngblood uh, that supersedes cars and, and money and all that stuff. But his memory lives on through Dan, who introduced me to Don. And, uh, you know, we life is, is more important right now uh, in terms of our conversation than actually bodybuilding. Dan and I are rarely even talk about bodybuilding. Well, time with your kids way outpaces the fun of any Ferrari. Yeah, for me. But you don't think that when you're 16 years old. You think, man, if I had that Ferrari on my wall, life would be perfect. But then you realize later on, ah, you know, it's just a car. (laughs) Well, let me tell you something. It's not just a car until you've driven it. Because we have these fantasies about these super vehicles. 
speed kills. I never took my car over 100 miles an hour. I didn't want to. I wanted to make sure everybody saw me driving it. Well, of course. But there's, <laughs> there's this certain level of achievement that and validation when you're able to have the purchasing power of buying the car of your dreams. I mean, I was a kid dreaming of cars like that. And to have the ability to purchase it and then to have the ability to get in and out of a car properly, which Dan was instrumental in helping me do, uh, didn't take advantage of me financially, but he uh, knew the car business, knows the car business, gave me some great advice on how to purchase, how to sell, and uh, which is why he's such a successful person as well. And uh, when that you know goes through your veins and you get it out of your system, uh, then we move into the next chapter: wife and kids and and business. And and you know, Dan, he's 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 had some health issues. I've had some issues, uh, uh, and he's mentored me spiritually on areas that I needed help in. So. It's really cool to see that this car thing has brought us together because that's how that's how my interest in being friends with Dan started is that we had this commonality for cars and then we realized we had this passion for bodybuilding and then we start talking about spirituality and then we start talking about life and mentorship and and really that's what's important. Hey Sean, uh, how did you fit in some of these cars? You mentioned some of these cars that I know have little bitty cockpits. And well, you're... which is well, yeah. <laughs> Which, which is why I, I didn't hang on to the Lamborghini Diablo for very long. It, it became a very uncomfortable ride for me. I was uh, a big bodybuilder for my height at 5'6", 240 pounds in the offseason. Um, it no longer became comfortable for me to get in the car and, and drive it to the gym or to the grocery store. I'm doing heavy squats. I'm doing heavy bent-over rows. I'm sore all the time. And, you know, to move into just a, a regular four-door vehicle uh, and be able to just get in and out with, with relative ease was more appealing to me than getting a super vehicle and then having to like squeeze into it. Be careful. I don't hit the curb. Um, the high octane, high octane gas, the high maintenance. It it became almost an albatross around my neck. And, uh, my, my taste changed to more of a luxury vehicle than a super vehicle, a super sports car. Um, and peer pressure is a bitch, man. I had a lot of my bodybuilding friends that were trying to keep up with me and, and, you know, they had to get the rims, and they had to get the latest sound system, and they had to get the latest car. And, and you go through that because it's a competitive world out there in bodybuilding and sports in general. Um, but, you know, the future became more important, and I gave up the luxury vehicles, uh, you know, for the mom-and-pop car when I became a dad. Hey, how was the Testarossa? You had the Miami Vice car, didn't you, at one yeah, time? I did. I had a 91 Testarossa, and I, I wanted the Miami Vice white, but I got black on black. And I got to tell you, in 1991, when I won the Arnold Classic in March, and I got that Testarossa here in Newport Beach, where I live, um, that to me was like validating my bodybuilding career. Because you got to imagine, here I was this high school football player. Uh, I got inducted in my high school Hall of Fame in 2007. But I was this all-American high school football player that walked away from a career in college and potentially scholarship to shave my body, look at half-naked men, and pursue <laughs> pursue this idea of posing on a stage half-naked. My friends thought I was nuts. Ah. And my mom and dad, how are you going to make a living, blah, blah, blah. And so- suddenly, I win the Arnold Classic. I'm on the cover of these international magazines. I got a little money in my pocket, and I buy my house, and I buy my Ferrari Testarossa. For me, uh, not only on the surface, but to everyone else, that was the picture of success. My validation of sacrificing the parties and the girlfriends and, and the birthdays and the holidays to train and lift weights and eat fish and diet year-round, 
it became real. So when I pulled up in this Ferrari Testarossa, people were like, well, "How the hell?" They knew I did. I wasn't a drug dealer. It was all. <laughs> it was all. It was all above board and, and, and legitimate. And I can give bodybuilding and Joe Weider and my career all the props for that. That I was able to per- have that popularity and that purchasing power, and it inspired everybody around the world that look, it's not bodybuilding's not for meatheads. It's not a poor man's sport. It's achievable. And I wanted to sell the dream to people in Australia and Germany and other places that look, I I did it. Yeah, you can do it too. You can do it too. And uh, I thought, you know what? I my responsibility is to show people that I it's you don't have to be broke in order to get your next protein powder or buy your next gym membership. I was living the lap of luxury because I was putting in the work in the gym. You did it. You sold me. You sold me all the magazines. Uh-huh. At the height of your career, how many hours? a day are you really lifting in the gym about three about three um, hours a day yeah the weight lifting is about 45 minutes and the cardio is about 45 minutes and i did that twice a day now does um, the cardio work against you if you're trying to no, gain muscle you be, be mindful i was an eating machine so my clock started at 6 a.m i would eat every three hours 6 9 12 3 6 9 sometimes 11 o'clock at night um, I did cardio to continue elevating my metabolism, which would help me burn fat. Uh, my cardio uh, was to elevate the heart rate, not to burn muscle. So I was in shape year-round, making lots of appearances, and the best way to stay in shape to burn fat is to do cardio, walking on the treadmill, riding the life cycle at a moderate pace. I wasn't trying to break a speed record or anything like that, but that typically, my cardio, I do fast and cardio in the morning before breakfast, and then the evening uh, uh, after my, my second workout. So an hour and a half of cardio for me was standard. It was normal. I never thought of it as I'm going to burn muscle, but a lot of bodybuilders thought, you know, during cardio, I'm going to lose size. I'm going to lose weight. And they measured their progress by the scale. I was a physique artist. I measured my progress by the mirror. So if I (laughs) saw that, if I saw that I didn't have the detail or the clarity that I was going to need to make these appearances, I would increase my cardio and I'd back up off my carbohydrates. The cardio for me throughout my career was my friend. It, it managed my body fat. And eating all those calories, eating all that food, you have to manage your body fat. And some of these bodybuilders get way off season, and during that time you can't make appearances. For me, that was when I made my money. I needed to make appearances. Um, true. So you can't be afraid of that. Now, that's three hours of my day. Most people work a nine-to-five. When I'm not in the gym as a paid bodybuilder, I was sleeping or resting or working on marketing myself as a product around the world. We didn't have the internet. I was sending faxes. I had to lick and post stamps and drop things in the mail to promote and market myself. I was working on videos. I made six videos during my career. I was making posters. I was making t-shirts. I was the marketing guy for Sean Ray Productions. So there's a lot of hours in a day having only three to sacrifice to train was minimalistic when you compare that to a football player, a baseball, a basketball player. I, I mean, I had more time on my hands that I knew what to do with, but when it came to the morning workout, I would allocate an hour and a half, my evening, an hour and a half, and in between, I got plenty of rest. Wow. How difficult was the strict dieting? Was there ever a time you go, screw it, I'm going to eat a cupcake? Um, yeah, and I didn't, I didn't fuss over it because I would earn that. I would train and diet from Monday to Friday. Saturday and Sunday, I try to just relax a little bit. And eating a donut, eating a pizza, having a hamburger and fries wasn't going to make me fat overnight. Sometimes it gives me that extra body fat to give me the energy come Monday 
to have something to burn off. So I rewarded myself. Psychologically, I would reward myself that Monday to Friday, i got to be strict. This is what I do for a living. But on Saturday and Sunday, I would relax a little bit. i have a bacon and eggs. I'd have some butter on my toast. Uh, and that wasn't something that I had to process in my head that this is setting me back. That was the reward for the sacrifice I made during the week. And so when you do that routinely, 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 you don't think of it as cheating on your diet. You don't think of it as a setback. You look at it as a reward. And that reward is fleeting because Saturday and Sunday go so fast. And Monday to Friday took forever because I'm eating the same thing over and over and over <laughs> again. None of, it, none of it tastes good. None of it is, is fixing what I need, which is salt and sugar. Um, but you, you have these mind games that you play, and you go, wow, on, on Saturday I can't wait to go and have a, a meal out because I cooked all my meals at home. Eating out, socializing with friends, that was the reward on Saturday and Sunday. And I didn't overindulge because if you overindulge, then it's really like you get this, this hangover that comes with it, this bloat. You know, you have a party in your stomach, and when you have a party in your stomach with all this stuff going on, it doesn't come out well. <laughs> so uh, I, I was I, I was OCD to a degree, but I knew I know when to say I could eat a I could take a bite of a candy bar and throw the rest away. Sure, I can eat a, I can eat a handful of fries. I can have a half of a donut. Uh, there's a certain amount of discipline that comes from being very strict. That overindulgence is not better. I like that one, two, that third bite going to put me over the top so i just throw it away i always wondered about this sean because i would read your articles and stuff and i always wondered are all these photos completely posed or is he really working out and somebody just comes and does the some pictures while during his normal routine how was that well, generally look, done it was it's both sometimes they're static shots because they got to get you in the moment some of them are motion shots where you're actually moving. But photography is a tricky business. Now you can do anything with a freaking iPhone. But That's back true. in those days, they, they had to set up the lights. They had to take the Polaroid to get the, make sure the lighting is right. And then you take the shot. My, my guy in the gym training, he liked real live action shots. Um, some guys like posed ones. For muscle fitness, they were more posed, more staged. But it's still hard to stand there and hold a 40-pound dumbbell, smile, blow out all the air, flex your abs, flex your legs, make it look effortless. Um, and there's an art to that, and you have to learn it through repetitious practice. So for me, the camera was my friend. And then I had my, like, Flex Magazine was more hardcore. They wanted to catch you in the middle of your workout, and Chris Lund being one of the best action photographers, he just wanted to follow me in the gym. And so I would do an actual workout, and he'd capture whatever he captures. So there's, there's, there's an art to that. Sean, can a person get in great shape at home, or do they really need to go join a gym? Yeah, you got to join a gym. I don't know anybody at home, even with a home gym, that's elevated to the motivation that it takes to train against someone that's in a gym, seeing their rivals in their in their element where you can sweat. You don't have to worry about the maintenance and all that other stuff. Uh, people at home, it's it's just too convenient. The phone rings, the kid cries, the donuts are in the refrigerator. Um, you have <laughs> yeah. to go. To, for me, I had I never bought or owned a piece of equipment while I was bodybuilding. It just didn't make sense. What's one of your favorite memories? Because you really, your era of bodybuilders were the first to really capitalize on Arnold Schwarzenegger making this a worldwide known sport. And then it um, opens up and then it's you're right there. I, uh, my favorite memory was turning pro because it validated my sacrifice of my football career. I graduated in 84 and I turned pro in 1987, three years later in Atlantic City, New Jersey, on a plane that I went by myself and a show that I went to for the first time in my life 
the biggest show that we have in the nation, the NPC Nationals. I won the light heavyweight, and I won the overall, and it validated my teenage Los Angeles victory, my teenage California, my Mr. California, uh, my junior world title, and suddenly I'm a national champion, and I'm now a professional bodybuilder, and I'm getting a contract with Joe Weider, who saw me coming up and watched me grow in three short years. Um, my sacrifice of what I did from eight years old to 18 playing football to pursue this dream of trying to be on the covers of magazines and travel the world and be mentioned in the same breath as Arnold and, and work for and be, become employed by Joe Weider for 17 years, it was, that's, that's the only memory that is crystallized in my head, the validation of getting that NPC title and being called a professional bodybuilder. Now I can make a living. Uh, that was the dream. And you made your, your own charity event. Is that right? You've I've got- done several. I've done several. I created a fitness uh, golf charity event to raise money for Children's Hospital of Orange County. I live in Orange County. Uh, in two years, we raised $55,000. Uh, a couple years after that, I helped a friend with uh, No Child Left Behind. It was meals that you were providing through the fundraising that we did where uh, we're trying to feed kids that couldn't feed themselves. And now I'm working with the Make-A-Wish Foundation at the Sean Ray Hawaiian Classic out uh, November the 10th in Honolulu, where we make uh, we raise some money and we make the proceeds available for the Make-A-Wish Foundation of Hawaii. So whenever I have an opportunity to work and make money, I try to attach it to a, a charity where I can give something back and plant some seeds. Hey, where can people start to follow you or maybe get some of your DVDs and that sort of thing? Where are you at online? Uh, uh, well, Sh- Sean Ray IFB Pro on Instagram. And Sugar Sean Ray on Twitter. I'm on Facebook, uh, The Real Sean Ray. And uh, they can go to my Hawaiian uh, Classic website, which is SR Hawaiian Classic. Um, I'm not hard to find. And uh, I, I'm truly blessed at the career that I've had and have the ability to give back, promote, and, and create opportunities for other athletes to come up and enjoy the fruits of my labor. Hey, we're blessed that you took time to talk with us here on our on our radio show in Little Rock. And and hopefully you're going to come back to Arkansas soon. Absolutely. Maybe I'll come back and Dan will give me a car my dreams again. <laughs> like uh, let's, that. Yeah, let's make that happen. Thank you right, so brother. much, Sean. Thank you. All right. Good bless. Hey, Sean Ray, professional bodybuilder, somebody I grew up uh, really idolizing. Very, very cool to have him on Guatney Unplugged. I'm Scott Romine. Have a great weekend. I'll see you next week. <laughs>